Hey everyone, it's time to break down suicide. Frank is a 12-time TEDx speaker, comedian, and a coach who knows what the barrel of his gun tastes like. So stay tuned, he has a lot of wisdom to share. Humans have been telling stories for thousands of years, and here's why. Stories activate our emotions, and whenever you combine emotion to new information, that knowledge sticks with us for a lot longer. That's why I'm on a quest to discover true modern stories by the people who live them so that we may all learn wisdom from it. My name is Cole. Thanks for joining me on the summit of Mentor Mountain. Okay. Well, Frank King, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, you know, Cole, it's part of a plea bargain, really. I was jail or Cole Tanner, and I thought, oh, what the... <laughs> you weren't supposed to say that. But sorry, man. We'll talk later after that. That's okay. Um, so you have quite the story. How did you get started in comedy? Fourth grade. Fourth grade. Yep. I told a joke. The kids laughed. The teacher was hysterical. She got so so hysterical. She had to excuse herself and go to the teacher's lounge. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. <laughs> Yeah. What do you remember the joke? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it was not the joke. It was just an, it was just a you know um, something I improved. I, I I my whole family is very nearsighted. Okay. Uh, my myopic is the is the medical term. And I wrote a joke years later that my family is descended from the people of the island of myopia, which was conquered over and over because they never saw the enemy coming. Um, but we were really nearsighted. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. And <laughs> I, back in the day, this is like early 60s, 1960s, there were no fashion frames, Cole. Girls had cat eye glasses in a couple of colors. And boys had what is now very popular, black Ray-Ban plastic. But back then, I mean, I'm, wear, I, I'm wearing a polyester, a bandlon shirt, polyester pants, hush puppies. You add glasses, that's like head-to-toe birth control. No way a woman's going to get anywhere close to you. So I didn't want to wear the glasses. I was very vain. Still am. And so my teacher knew I had to wear them. She thought I was worried because everybody make fun of four eyes, you know. So she had an idea, a good one. You know, just pull the Band-Aid off. Let's let everybody see Frank's glasses all at once. Let's get it over with. So she gets me to the front of the class, turns me away from the kids, puts my glasses on me, turns me back, and looks down at me and says, see, you look intelligent. And I looked up at her and said, yes, that would explain all the laughter. <laughs> and just add off the top of my head. And so I, I thought I would be a comedian. 12th grade, I'd been <laughs> taking drama for three years, never getting a good part. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, no speaking parts. And I thought, you know what? If I do stand up, I can write, produce, and direct a star in my little show every night. So they had mm -hmm. a talent show. Nobody ever done stand up. So, and I won, I beat the accordion player and the folk dancers. And, nice. and then I said to my mother, I'm going to LA to be, you know, a comedian. She goes, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care, but you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. Yeah. So UNC Chapel Hill, a couple of college degrees. And then the insurance company I worked for at Raleigh transferred me to San Diego. And there's a branch of the comedy store to this day on Pearl Street in La Jolla, which is a suburb of San Diego. That's where I started. And in my first five minutes, well, I tell people, look, if you want to stand up, go to open mic night just to watch twice. 
see how bad 85% of those people suck. And yeah. it'll give you the courage. And sure enough, I mean, I'm looking at these people thinking, I'm funny or not, just walking around. So I got up <laughs> halfway through my five minutes. I heard a voice inside my head, you're home. I thought, okay. Mm-hmm. And then my second thought was, I want to do this for a living. I have no idea how. And I had no idea, Cole, how hard it was. <clears throat> I've threatened to write a keynote called, what could you do if you didn't know no better? Because I had no idea. Had I known, I might not have tried it. But I said to my girlfriend, 18 months later, I said to my girlfriend, now my wife of 37 years, I'm going on the road to be a stand-up comic. You want to come along for the ride? Figuring she'd go, oh, hell no. Yeah. She goes, yeah. So gave up our jobs, apartment, put everything we could fit into our my little Dodge Colt. We were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop, no home, comedy club to comedy club, beer bar to beer bar. Worked with wow. Seinfeld, Dennis Miller, Foxworthy, Ron White, Ellen DeGeneres, Dr. Ken, Loretta, uh, Rosie, Ellen, you know, um, Kevin Neelett, pretty much India, Dice Man, Jim Carrey, Robin Williams, just pretty much anybody who's anybody nowadays. Because it was, it was a comedy yeah. boom, 84 to 94, clubs popping up like mushrooms. So, yeah. what did you that's learn how I guess from? That's thanks for sharing that. And what did you learn from working with those people? Were there any moments that stuck out to you? Oh uh, yeah, you know the 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 better ones. Um, they were all really nice. Uh, Dennis Miller was for the those eighteen months I was doing open mic nights. I was a doorman on the weekends at the comedy store. So I watched Jim Carrey and Dice Man and Dana Carvey and you know, and you know just soaking it all up. And I picked a style very much like Letterman clean or blazer and a tie. You know, all the other comics just put on whatever was on the floor that wasn't too dirty. So stood out that way. I niched myself as a clean comic, did a lot of topical material, loved the newspaper. And Seinfeld said, yeah, you know, topical. I mean, I worked so hard on a joke, and a topical joke could be history tomorrow because the world moved on. So, mm-hmm. but I, I, that's what I was, you know, that, that was my, a strong suit. I loved picking up. And then that worked really well because couple of years in leno got the permanent guest host job at the tonight show and johnny would come in on a friday and go i'm taking next week off which meant jay had four nights 18 jokes a night for the monologue had to create over the weekend so he started hiring guys like me under contract road comics to send in jokes so he'd have something you know jokes for the week and then when he got the job for real he let most of the contract labor go but kept some of us on and and i was with him until he left for still writing at a distance but with him until he left for cnbc very cool. Okay. Well, that's quite the journey. You and and you're still doing stand up right now? Not unless it involves a plea bargain. No, uh, no I I don't do clubs because they don't pay well. And and yeah. I do. I I gave up clubs in '95 for the most part. Started doing corporate comedy after dinner, after lunch, at conventions, conference. And people say to me, "Well, what's the difference between a club comic and a corporate comic? About five grand a night plus travel." I'm no math major, and some of my friends gave me a hard time. They're very purists in comedy. You sold out. Yeah, well, you know what? I'm a whore, but I'm a high price whore. <laughs> so I did sell out, and then I rode that horse till 2008 when the bottom dropped out of the every market, and um, we lost everything in Chapter 7 bankruptcy, and that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like, literally. A yeah, friend of mine said to me, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so 2011, 12, when speaking came back, 
uh, media planner said, Frank, we love you. We just can't pay you five grand anymore to be funny. You got to teach our audience something. I'm thinking, what? I always wanted to do that. I always wanted to, you know, be a, not just a funny speaker, but a speaker who was funny. And when I realized, wait a minute, I came close to killing myself. I live with two mental illnesses. There are more nuts in my family than in a squirrel turd. So I could keep it on suicide prevention if I got some training, which I did. And then my second hurdle was, okay, who's going to take me seriously after two and a half decades of comedy? So I did my first TEDx talk on suicide. And then I got invited to do more. And I just did my 12th TEDx on December 30th. All on mental health, awesome. one aspect or another. Yeah, so, and and that's about, about three TEDx's in. People were calling me and saying, hey, man, can you help me get a TEDx? Sure. And a friend of mine who's a business coach called me, Carrie uh, Schwer. She goes, I get the feeling you are teaching people to do a TEDx and you're not charging them anything and that's got to stop. So she introduced me to a fellow named Reed, who I talked to today because I, I refer my clients to him. He built me a couple of websites, one for TEDx coaching, one for make money speaking coaching. And, and I, as a matter of fact, Carrie just got a new puppy. I commented how darling it is, and she asked me how I was doing, and I said, I'm great. I just did my taxes, Carrie, and life is good because of you. She goes, how's that? Remember that coaching advice you gave me to charge? She goes, yeah, I just did my taxes. Last year, I made a $168,000 coaching. She's like, it, it was the best business That's advice so I ever awesome. got. It was free. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, so yeah, she she goes, yeah. Well, and a friend of mine at the beginning of the pandemic said to me, you know, I don't know when live events are coming back, Frank. You know, I know you're charging for coaching now. You need to lean into that because you can do it from your living room. Mm-hmm. So that was the second yeah. best piece of advice I got. So I leaned into that. That's really cool. <clears throat> so I want to I want you to take me to that moment because, yeah, it's so funny. Funny, not funny, how ironic it is that a, a comedian – speaks on suicide, right? Yeah. But I want you to take me to that moment where, you know, you're tasting the barrel of your gun. What dis- what made you decide to to stop? Oh, that's easy. Uh, we were broke. My wife was devastated. I had a million-dollar life insurance policy. Mm-hmm. One of the three legs of the three-legged stool of suicidality is burdensomeness. You believe the world would be better off without you. And I knew she'd be better off financially without me. She'd be brokenhearted, but she wouldn't be broke anymore. She'd be restored financially. So I'm thinking, I can fix this. So that's why I put the gun in my I went to the bar to practice to see if I could do it. And I could. I put the, well, I pulled the hammer back, put it in my mouth, uh, you know. So I thought, oh, I can do this. But I sold insurance right out of college. That was my first job. And I knew that life insurance policies had a two-year suicide clause. I didn't know how long I'd had it. So I called my agent. He said, you've had it 22 months and don't do it. Because he knew. He had questions mm-hmm. like that before. So yeah, I had to wait two months to guy. kill myself. I thought, well, hell, I can wait two months. So fortunately, by the end of two months, I wasn't marking days off the calendar. And the life must have gotten a little better, just enough to get me over the hump. And you know, bankruptcy went through, phone call stopped. And we began to rebuild. And we did. Took, you know, t- Chapter 7 is on your credit for 10 years. Yeah, and on August tenth, two thousand ten, it came off. Uh, two thousand twenty, it came off, and we were, we had rebuilt our credit, you know, over the intervening years, so that we were, you know, I mean, you you got to rebuild your credit. At some point, you're going to have to buy a car or a house, or you know, you got to. A lot of people don't bother, or they go back into debt, deep into debt. 
Right, so, right. Anyway, that's why I didn't pull the trigger because I wasn't going to leave my wife broke and brokenhearted. Yeah. Yeah, if, if it had been paid up two years, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah, well, I'm glad it, I'm glad you bought that life insurance policy two months too late. Yes, as am I. And apparently, I, you know, and, and, and people say to me, you, how'd, you, how'd you choose suicide as a topic? Well, it runs in my family. It's generational depression and suicide, grandmother, great aunt. I said, actually, the topic chose me. And it, the, you know, ha having two mental illnesses and coming that close to suicide, a lot of credibility with the audience. Although a psychologist yep. busted me one time after a speech. He goes, man, what mm -hmm. qualifies you to talk about suicide prevention? You're not, you're not a psychologist. You're not a psychiatrist. You're not a therapist. I said, well, I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. And in the silence that followed, I said, look, chief, I could go to college and learn everything you know. Absolutely everything. You will never know everything I know. And that's true. What qualifies me, that, that lived experience. Absolutely. And, you know, having that full understanding of what people are going through, uh, one, it gives you a lot of empathy, but two, I commend you for having the courage to talk about it because I feel like there is a, there's a societal norm that su the suicide topic is uncomfortable, even though we, many of us know someone or, you know, are, are, we know someone. If you're if you live past age twenty five, yeah. you probably know somebody who's experienced that. Yeah, that's what I discovered when I was preparing for my first TEDx talk. Even though one person, one per, even though at the time one person in the U.S. died of suicide every eleven minutes, hardly anybody talked about it unless you brought it up, and then almost everybody has a story. Yeah. Now, by the yeah. way, it's every nine minutes. Uh, when I started in my first TEDx, thirty nine thousand people died the year before of suicide. In 22, 2022, almost 50,000 died. So it's, it's it's a growth industry, unfortunately. Yeah, really, unfortunately. What what would you say to somebody who has a friend they're concerned about with suicide? Oh, I would, I would say if they think the friend is having thoughts of suicide, mm -hmm. I would say flat out ask them, are you having mm -hmm. thoughts of suicide? And if they say no... But you suspect your gut tells you they're circling the drain. You look for these signs. Um, they talk about death and dying. You catch them Googling death, dying, or how to die by suicide. Mm -hmm. Death and dying is maybe a theme in their artwork or their music or their writing. They're getting their affairs in order, especially if they're giving away prized possessions. They want to make sure they go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone. Mm -hmm. And here's a counterintuitive one that's very dangerous. They've been depressed forever, and now they're happy for no apparent reason, and you're happy because they're happy. Well, they may be happy because they've chosen time, place, and method. They know the pain is coming to an end because a lot of people don't realize most suicides aren't about killing yourself. It's about ending the pain. Mm -hmm. But let's say they are forthcoming. They go, yeah, I'm having thoughts of suicide. What do you do? Well, they say, oh, do you have a plan? If they have a plan, it's detailed, time, place, method, Need to get them to a mental health facility simply for evaluation, see what's going on. Or have them call 988, the new suicide prevention lifeline text line. Now, I've never read this anywhere or heard this anywhere. It's something a psychologist, a psychiatrist and I came up with. What have they got a plan? But it's not detailed. I would say, all right, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, 
I would say, tell me why not. Make him give voice to whatever's keeping him here, because something is keeping him here. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I like that, yeah. I like the fact of even just bringing it up. That flat, yeah. just flat out just asking, are you, do you want to commit suicide? Have you had suicidal yeah. thoughts? And talking about that, I feel like people have this fear that if you talk about it, it's going to happen, but that's not the case with suicide. It's the opposite. When people can have a free place to vent out and talk yeah. about things, it's, it allows a lot of freedom. They're less likely to die by suicide if you bring it up and flat out ask them, are you having thoughts of suicide? Yeah, it's an old wives' tale that you should never mention the S word in front of somebody who's depressed. And I love the reasoning. It might give them the idea. Yeah, like it didn't cross my freaking mind. <laughs> Yeah, the person who came up with that obviously hasn't had depression or a suicidal thoughts no. before. No, yeah. yeah, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, just ask them, are you having thoughts of suicide? Simple, I mean, it's a difficult question, simple but difficult. And when I speak, yeah. every time I speak, I put my cell phone number on the screen. I say, look, if you're, if you're having thoughts of suicide, call, you know, 988. If you're just having a bad day, call a crazy person, here's my cell. And I tell them, look, if you if you think somebody you know is thinking about suicide and you can't ask that question, call me. I'll ask them. Mm. Because, you know, it really doesn't matter who asks. Just somebody's got to yeah. ask. Yeah. Well, I admire that, that you're willing to do that for a stranger and everybody because that's that truly shows that you've you've been there before. Uh, that's. Yeah, my goal is to save a life a day. Not be thought. That's amazing. My goal is to save one life a day. That's a great goal. Well, I appreciate you doing this call. And um, and one thing that I, I, I started thinking about when I heard about your mission was because I, I was listening to one of your talks and you said to call the suicide hotline. And I got thinking, well, what would prevent somebody from wanting to call that hotline? And, and for me, I'm just thinking, bam, well, I don't want people to have my information or die. Like I, I'm, I hate opening up. It's really hard for me, but after looking into it more today, it's really cool that they, you don't know the other person on the other line, on the other end of the phone. They don't know you. They want mm -hmm. to just talk to you and allow you to have a space to open up, which I think is really cool. Yeah. yeah. And men have a difficulty doing that. That's why eight out of 10 suicides in the U S every year, are men, eight uh, big boys don't cry. That's the way I was raised in the South. Yeah. Um, the, the good news is eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. They can't make up their mind. Nine out of 10 actually give hints in the last week leading up to the suicide. So I tell the audience, look, you can make a difference. You can save a life and you can do it by doing something as simple as we're doing right here. And that is having a conversation. If you know how, and before I leave, I'll teach you how. So I empower the audience to make the save. That's lovely. And, and it's really interesting too how a lot of people regret the decision after they've made you know you hear the story of somebody who jumps off the bridge and as they're falling they regret the decision and things like that and from what i understand that happened to your aunt right yes do you <laughs> mind a lovely speaking story you sure you want to hear this uh well so if yeah. you're listening to this podcast or watching brace yourself i don't yeah. you know it, it's, it's an awful horrible horror story um my mom, my grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. What happened was, after my mother found my grandmother, 
a number of years later, my great aunt, my mom couldn't reach her on the phone, got worried given the family history. So we went over to her apartment, let ourselves in. And I'm four, I'm, you know, holding on mom's skirt tail, walking through there, nothing out of place till we get to the kitchen. All the food that should have been in the refrigerator, the old lock type refrigerator, the kind if you crawled into, you couldn't get out of, all the food's on the counter, butter, milk, eggs, cheese. My mother didn't realize what had happened. My great aunt had crawled into the refrigerator to die by suicide. Some point changed her mind, apparently, and tried to claw her way out. So my mother swings open the door, and my great aunt falls out and pins me to the floor. We're face to face, and her face is frozen that last moment of horror. And so that's why I scream for days. Mm. So, and when you're when you're already hardwired for suicide as my family is, and you're that close to a suicide, and I don't think anybody can get any closer, then the chance of you seriously considering it go up, and sure enough, when things got really bad, um, you know, it, it, I, it came that close. Gosh. That's wild. Um, well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it just goes to show to me that you might regret it, you know, halfway through that decision, you know, there, there might be something that pulls you back. And so it's worth it to talk to people first. Um, yeah, there's a guy named Kevin Hines. If you ever get a chance, go to YouTube, type in Kevin Hines, Golden Gate Bridge. He jumped and survived. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, he's bipolar, living bipolar disorder. He's home. He, he's hearing voices telling him to kill himself. And he said, but how am I going to do it? So he went online and he Googled, how do you kill yourself in San Francisco? And of course, there was a helpful website outlining all the bridges that would do the trick. And so he got on a bus and he said to himself, if anybody asks me, are you okay? I'll spill my guts, tell them to call the police. I'm suicidal. Nobody on the bus asked him. He goes out on the bridge. He's looking over the railing. He feels a tap on his shoulder and he's thinking, oh, thank God. And the woman's a tourist. She goes, will you take our picture? So he took their picture. They turned their backs, took a few steps away and over the rail he goes. And he realized as soon as he let go of the rail, it was a mistake. Fortunately, he, he, he hurt his back, but didn't kill him. And he's in the water, and something large and aquatic bumps up against his leg. And he said, his first thought was, shark? Nobody on the website mentioned sharks. <laughs> I survived the drop. I'm going to get eaten by a shark? Well, it was a sea lion. I wasn't oh, sure. Man. But yeah, he tells that, he goes around the country telling that story. He re, I, had a, I had a friend, a good friend, who uh, lost his job and was staying in a hotel, a high rise in Miami, and he went over the railing. And I th- I don't think he had underlying mental illness. I think it was just being fired in the way they fired him. And that was the only way he could think of, to because, you know, there are, are no good ways to die, but but a fall like that because you have time to think about it on the way down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that just has no appeal. I was talking to a guy on the phone one day. He was depressed and suicidal, and in passing, he goes, "Yeah, I picked up an Amtrak schedule." And I said, "I'm not sure that a neurotypical person would pick that up." I go, "Hold on." I said, "Look, I'm not going to tell you not to kill yourself. That's not my jam." Uh, what I am going to ask you to do is please don't do it that way because as soon as you step on the tracks, you're probably going to lock eyes with the engineer and you're going to end your life and ruin theirs. Mm-hmm. So don't, don't take anybody with you. Yeah. 
Yeah. But again, it's well, listening for that, you know, that sort of non sequitur. I mean, an Amtrak schedule. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not easy. That's an interesting way. You just have to train your mind to be able to pick up on those things and really think yeah. about them. It's not enough to just hear them once in this podcast, but it's in maybe write them down, really think about them, ponder them, think about people. Um, and think so about people who be more prepared. Yeah, think about people in your life you've heard these things from recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah and then it's who, great what? practice to just ask that question flat out. Yeah. And also ask if you, you know, I, I do this with even strangers. If I, I look at somebody and I think, hey, man, you okay? Sometimes, because if somebody said that to Kevin Hines in the bus or on the bridge, he wouldn't have jumped. He would have said, I'm, I'm depressed, I'm suicidal, I'm about to jump, call the police. Mm-hmm. So sometimes just say, hey, are you okay? How you doing? Hey, man, how you doing? You okay? Yeah. You know? And it's it's really hard to know what to say in those situations, I would imagine. But from what I understand, and I'm not going to pretend like I've had a conversation with someone else who's going through that, but it's important to listen. You don't have to say the perfect things. Um, just listen. And yeah. the best thing is to encourage them to call that hotline if you don't and um, offer to be there with them while they call. Yeah, you know, it's not a not a big deal to just sit there and let them call and support them that way. Or call eight nine eight eight, and the volunteer, because the person says I don't want to talk to them, call nine eight eight while they're there, and and then the volunteer will do what they can, talk the phone into the hand of the person who's in crisis. Mm. Yeah, it's and every now and then I get a call from somebody. Uh, I get a call from my dental 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 practice manager. Really, I done a I done a suicide prevention dental thing. She'd been there. She had a patient. When she asked him how he was doing there in the chair, he said he was depressed and suicidal. She said, excuse me for a minute. And she called me, what in the hell? I said, well, <laughs> go back in there and say, do you have a plan? And if he's got a plan, what is the plan? If it's detailed, you need to call the police because he's actively suicidal. Now, when you do that, and if they believe he's actively suicidal, they got to take him in front of a judge and try to get him locked down for 72 hours. Mm-hmm. So just know that going in. But, you know, he's going to be pissed. He's probably not going to come back to have a tooth filled, but he'll be alive. Yeah. Man, that's wild. Welcome to my world, Cole. Frank King. <laughs> Thanks for letting me be a part of your world for a minute. This yeah, is man. great. Um, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you for coaching? Uh, coaching? Um how mm-hmm. to make money speaking.com. Perfect. Yeah, I know I had to I had to find a URL for that recently in the last six months. And my wife goes, Well, how about how about how to make money speaking.com? And I'm thinking, in 2023, do you really think that's available? So I typed in GoDaddy, how to make money speaking.com. Oh my God. So <laughs> there. Yeah. yeah. And I'm on I'm on uh, LinkedIn. I've got a real big okay. footprint on LinkedIn. Uh, Frank King Comedian, you'll find me. You'll see it. Okay. I'll leave some links in the description. Frank, thanks so much for being on. Yeah, man. Keep up the good work. Uh, You know, maybe we saved a life today. Who knows? Yeah, I hope so. Thanks for listening, and make sure to follow if you like modern inspirational stories. Share this with a friend who needs it, and I will catch you on the next Mentor Mountain. Bye.